0: Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCleskey.
0: We are right in the middle of Religious Freedom Week, so it's an opportune time to talk about religious liberty and Catholic social teaching. And I'm happy that we could be joined today by Anthony Piccarello. Anthony serves the USCCB as General Counsel and Associate General Secretary. He's a religious liberty expert, and he's been speaking and writing lately on religious liberty and the common good. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So I think it might help to start off by saying a little bit about your background, uh, just so people understand where you're coming from on this topic. You've worked for many years as a lawyer working on religious liberty issues, um, and you also serve as an advisor to the bishops on public policy issues. Now, could you mind just expanding on that a little bit, you know, where are you coming from? Talk about your experience a little bit and, and how that, your experience, informs your thinking about religious liberty. Sure. Thanks. Here's,
2: here's my background. I, I'm, I'm here at the conference for about 11 years, and um, I started out just as general counsel providing, you know, kind of ordinary legal advice, including on religious freedom questions because religious liberty is sort of a subtext to more or less everything we do here as lawyers. But as you mentioned, in the last five years or so, I've also been doing uh, work with the general secretary coordinating the advocacy and policy work of the conference, which has involved also, alas, unfortunately, um, many more religious freedom issues than in the past. And so um, there's been a real intersection between sort of that legal aspect and the policy aspect. Before that, I was at Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty for about seven years. And there, it was just pure litigation on religious freedom questions. That was a lot of fun. We represented people of all <laughs> faiths, as the Becca fund continues to do now. Uh, but it was also sort of a great experience in terms of learning about religious freedom principles and um, understanding the lay of the land in terms of the contemporary issues and what's most pressing and kind of where 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 the efforts are needed the most. I think that was sort of a key. Key element. So uh, I was grateful to be able to kind of bring that over to the conference and bring that experience and, and service uh, to bear for the bishops. It's been really a, an honor and a pleasure to continue to work that work those issues here.
0: So uh, lately, you've been thinking more about religious freedom and the and the common good specifically. I'm just curious what prompted you to to look at it from this perspective. I mean, I, I think we we often look at religious liberty violations and we're thinking how do we protect the churches, ministries, and that sort of thing. But looking at it more generally from the perspective of Catholic social teaching, um, the common good, yeah, what 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 was the impetus for that? Sure.
2: Well, th- there's kind of a short-term and a long-term answer to that question. Um, the short-term answer is that I was recently asked to give a talk at the University of St. Thomas Law School um, where the overarching uh, theme was religious freedom and the common good. But really, that Moment of being asked sort of resonated with a lot of thinking I've been doing about this again arising out of this experience. You know, I'm not I'm not really um, a scholar by background um, in uh, Catholic social teaching. You know, I have sort of the typical three year lawyer's training. Um, I I try to be thoughtful about what it is that I'm doing in this regard, but I just found that through the experience there were some things themes that were popping back into my head over and over again. And so when I was invited to do that, it really I view that as a real opportunity to kind of crystallize that, reflect on it, try to be a little bit systematic, a little more systematic in thinking about it rather than just, you know, uh, dealing with, the, with the, the controversy of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the biggest theme that had been floating around in my mind in this regard related to, and I think it was also one of the things that inspired the conference at UST, was the heavy emphasis, an appropriate heavy emphasis, in the Bishop's Conference um, advocacy regarding religious liberty surrounding the freedom to serve. And I think that that's been, again, a, a good emphasis, a, a long suit uh, of ours uh, as a church, that there's a lot for us to say on that topic. Um, I think it's it's been effective in persuading people uh, about the importance of religious liberty, that it's not just a matter of um, sort of a hyper-individualistic uh, concern to kind of do what I want at the moment, um, but that it has an orientation toward the common good. And I think that that's really key. And again, I'm glad that we've been emphasizing that. Uh, but at the same time, I think there are um, things that get lost. I mean, when you're, when you're engaged in public advocacy, um, I, I find at the conference a lot of times when we're doing our advocacy, there's a, a bad temptation that advocacy to uh, say everything that there is to be said on a topic. And that if somehow you're not covering the landscape completely, that you're giving it, a, um, giving the issue short shrift. Mm-hmm. In order to be an effective communicator, I think, in policy advocacy and anywhere, you really have to highlight certain things, kind of pick your best one or two arguments and lead with those. And again, that's what we've done. Um, but at the same time, I, I've been aware of, you know, what we haven't advanced, uh, what arguments there are out there that we haven't pressed as hard. Uh, perhaps because maybe they wouldn't play quite so well. Not that they play badly, but they wouldn't play quite so well. And again, I, I think some of those fall within the the realm of the common good properly understood. And it just seemed like maybe it would be good to to speak to those, um, so that you're speaking about the freedom to serve as an element of common good, but but other aspects of the relationship of religious liberty to the common good.
1: Mm-hmm. And Anthony, when you say freedom to serve. You're you're talking about really our call or everyone's call really to not just worship as that, that's worship alone is not the expression of your faith, but actually what are the social, the services, the ministries serving others uh, in accord with your beliefs that, that that's what you mean by freedom to serve?
2: Yeah, I think it's so it, it is on the one hand, as you emphasize, contrasted with um, the reduction of religious freedom to the freedom to worship, right? uh, There is a lot of impetus uh, these days in the culture and in some governmental circles to treat religious freedom as just the freedom of worship. And emphasizing the freedom to serve emphasizes that there's more to religious freedom than just that. That's true. But I think the other thing that the emphasis on freedom to serve contrasts with is an idea of Uh, religious freedom that's just kind of, again, a a guise to express bald preferences in a socially legitimate way. (laughs) You know, I want to do this now, and I really want to do it a lot. Therefore, it's a conscience issue. Therefore, it warrants religious freedom protection. Um, I know that there's a lot of, uh, sometimes a lot of our religious freedom advocacy can be miscast in those terms. I know that bishops themselves, and rightly so, are suspicious of uh, anything that's cast in, in extremely individualistic terms. Uh, in part because it can be so easily manipulated into that, that kind of a um, reality um, that you, you can basically have folks effectively hijack religious freedom rhetoric into sort of a more relativistic, again, or hyper-individualistic mode. And the freedom to serve, I think, underscores that the freedom that we have is one that um, ought to be oriented toward the good. That it's not just a freedom to do whatever I want, but it's a freedom precisely to be selfless, um, mm-hmm. not selfish, um, to help other people, to improve their lot in life, um, mm-hmm. especially those who are most vulnerable.
0: Yeah, I think that, and, and this year, that's our theme for Religious Freedom Week is serving others and God's love. And I think that part of the thing with the freedom to serve argument is it also gets to the integrity issue. I mean, if you're mo- if if we're motivated to do to serve. By our faith, then it wouldn't make sense to to violate your faith in order to continue to offer those services. Sometimes it's made to seem like, well, you could still you can still serve, you just have to do it in this particular way. Um, So I mean, it does it speaks to lots of different issues, but it but I think it uh, it speaks also to I think Catholics are proud of their institutions. And this is a way that institutions are really under threat. But, but like you say, it doesn't necessarily. It's not going to cover everything, right. and so you can't only talk about freedom to serve. I want to get a little bit. I, I do want to get talk more about this whole issue of language, and mm-hmm. because it's something our committee's been talking about. Sure. Archbishop Kurtz, our committee chair, talked about it at the June meeting. But first, just I think I don't want to skip over maybe the most important yep. question, which is. Sure. Uh, religious freedom, the common good. You've kind of taken another look at the compendium, the catechism. So not like going, compendium, you know,
1: you're talking about, you say compendium. Uh, the compendium yes. of the social doctrine of the church. right? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Thank right. you. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the compendium of the social doctrine of the church, which just kind of summarizes Catholic social teaching draws from different documents. Um, looking at the catechism of the Catholic church. Um, So not going like elbow deep in Thomistic theories of the common good or something like that, but like what just the bare bones, what the church teaches, um, taking another look from this angle, what have you found? What is the, what does the church teach that the common good is? What does religious liberty have to do with it? So uh, I
2: appreciate that question because I guess um, one of the things that I found in practical terms, apart from theoretical terms, is that. Um, Unfortunately, most Catholics aren't even ankle-deep in this. Professor uh, Widmer over at Catholic U recently did a survey um, to ask Catholics basically what they knew about key terms in Catholic social teaching, one of them being the common good. Uh, In his survey, the term common good was the one where Catholics responded with the greatest confidence that they knew what it meant. Um, There are terms like, you know, subsidiarity or solidarity where they, you know, they're more likely to say, I don't know. With common good, they say, yeah, oh, I know what that is. And then when you ask them what it is, it turns out, so 85% said, yeah, they knew. 75% got it wrong when they were asked the wrong (laughs) question what it is. So, um, you know, there, so many of these terms have worked their way into common discourse and as a result of that, have taken on different shades of meaning and, and in many respects, lost kind of what their, their core is. So that's why it's important to kind of go back to just even these very rudimentary definitions, you know, mm-hmm. these kind of one-liners that we see in the compendium, the catechism. Um, you know, it, it, it's not all the nuance, but it, 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 uh, it adds a lot of value just to reflect on it. So anyway, with, with that sort of long preface, what's the common good? What are we talking about here? Well, according to Gaudium et Spes, um the, it is the sum total of social conditions which allow people either as groups or individuals to reach their fulfillment more fully and more easily mm-hmm. so basically it has to do with social conditions oriented toward cult, you know promoting the, the the good of each individual each person i should say <laughs> this is the proper term for us to promote their human flourishing And not just any one of them but all of them together so that's that's a highly distilled statement, and again, you know, each of these, you know, every other word, you could pause and sort of mm-hmm. dig super deep. Um, but just it, it, it's enough, I think, to just bring people in the ballpark because common good can just mean so many other things to folks that it doesn't actually mean or is sort of ephemeral. So then I started digging a, a little deeper than that, just like only the I don't know instead of ankle deep, maybe calf deep now, um, and. Well, again, what does this term mean? And the the compendium again provides sort of three subterms: um, respect for the dignity of the human person, social well being and development, and peace and security. So these are the the kind of constituent elements of the common good. Kind of the next level of specificity, and then you kind of look in a little farther, and that's where religious freedom starts to pop up explicitly in the teaching. Which was and that was kind of the big jolt that I had. Um, You know again i I had this sense again from this experience that maybe the common good wasn't getting um the connection between religious freedom and the common good wasn't being uh discussed as fully as it could be but then i was just surprised to see how much that was true how much of the church's teaching regarding the common good already encompasses religious freedom and in a very express specific way um so that was, that was a surprise, and it was a pleasant surprise. But then just upon reflection, it, it totally makes sense. I mean, especially when you look at the first one right out of the block, you know, respect for the dignity of the human person. That's a constituent element of the common good. Uh, and, of course, religious freedom, uh, as we have it from dignitas Humanity, is rooted in, in, the, in the dignity of the human person. And the compendium uh, specifies sort of as an example of what respect for the uh, dignity of the human person means. It's kind of foremost example is respect for conscience and religious freedom. Mm-hmm. So it was like, all right, you know, it's, it's not just that religious freedom can lead to advancing of the common good because you're leaving space for people to serve the common good in soup kitchens and um, uh, homes for seniors and uh, adoption agencies and all that other stuff. It's not mm-hmm. just instrumentalized in that way. It's inherent. It's, it's a constitutive element of the common good. Respecting religious freedom, Regardless of what the consequences of that may be, except at the, at the remote limits, but just respecting religious freedom authentically understood is something that serves the common good. And that, that's, that's key.
1: So, Anthony, as you're, as you're talking about this, what instantly pops to my mind is the experience of a, a Catholic living in the United States with our Constitution, our government, and all right. of that. So, there are people who would say, okay, but what about the separation of church and state? Mm-hmm. So, what's the role of the church? You know, in in ensuring the common good for all, but also, uh, you know, so sort of how do you merge the Catholic beliefs with the American sure. principles of government? It's just a small, it's just a know, small question. A small <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there are a few
2: uh, component parts that. I mean, I think, you know, the separation of church and state as a phrase is kind of freighted and um, mm-hmm. has not always served the church well, and historically has sometimes been used. Uh, as a way to kind of exclude religious voices and especially Catholic mm-hmm. voices from the public square. However, um, at the same time, um, there is a there is a kernel of truth to that phrase, and it's something that I don't think Catholics should sort of uh, renounce entirely or abandon. I know that uh, Professor Garnett at um, Notre Dame has been, you know, going about to a large degree rehabilitating that term um, separation.
1: Professor of, Garnett re- re- at Notre Dame. What is he? Professor?
2: Uh, he's so Professor Rick Garnett uh, at uh, the law school at the University of Notre Dame, uh, First Amendment scholar. Uh, I think he's a, a dean there um, as well. He's not the dean of law school, but in any event, uh, he has been really um, spending a lot of time. I mean, he's, he's very thoughtful on religious freedom questions across the board, but I know, again, he's spent a lot of time reflecting on how, in fact, there is an appropriate and important institutional separation between. Mm-hmm. Um, the institution of the church and the institution of the state, um, particularly as it uh, entails the protection of the institution of the church. right? I mean, it has to do with things like church autonomy and, and the ability of the church to organize itself and to choose its own leaders and to declare its own doctrines without governmental interference. Mm-hmm. So that, that element of, of separation of church and state is something that, that um, you know, warrants emphasis, mm-hmm. rightly understood. Uh, and I think uh, one thing that, that um, Rick and others can can well go about is, is making sure that it is rightly understood. Um, I think that you know we um, as it relates more specifically to the freedom to serve, I think that you know this isn't about you know involving the church in the affairs of the state in a way that might um, you know raise separationist Even you know it might um, uh, get get folks who have been, um, very strong in pushing um, Establishment Clause separation over the years that that, it, that shouldn't be it shouldn't bother them because this just has to do with sort of leaving the church alone not allowing the church to intrude on the state in some way even colorably um, instead it's a matter of keeping the the government out of the church's affairs letting it do what it does well in terms of human services in terms of Um, mutual aid in terms of uh, education, all those other things. And it doesn't, you know, imply any element of government support. It's just the kind of, um, call it benign neglect, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. or sometimes called benevolent neutrality, that sort of thing. Just the idea that, um, if, if the government leaves the institution alone, the institution will, um, sort of of its own impetus serve the common good. Um, so that and and that act by the state of allowing that to happen is part of the common good. Mm-hmm. That's the that very move by the government is part of the common good. Um, and again, that that's that's kind of one of those those insights. That again, it's it's just I think it's probably well known to the folks who sp- spend their lives in the world of Catholic social teaching. Um, but I don't think that's well known to many Catholics. And again, it was sort of. Something I only sort of intuited until, you know, spending some time just looking at the express reflection on it.
0: I think um, Pope Benedict on in Dave's Est also has good stuff on the separation of church and state. Um, mm-hmm. it, I mean, he's not he's not speaking in those terms, right. but but there is a sense. Obviously, there's a distinction between church and state. Maybe is the better way to put it. A um, distinction of spheres. And there's a sense in which if the state has to is charged with promoting the common good, but part of the so that includes promoting justice, but and I'm just summarizing um, to the best of my memory, but um, but also another I mean charity is also uh, something that all people need, which the state can't provide. So there's a sense in which the state actually needs needs religion to to do what it's supposed to do and yet it can't it's not supposed to it can't encroach on the religious sphere so you kind of it's almost paradoxical that it needs you know that it needs the these religious institutions it needs the church to do um to 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 infuse society with with love basically um because otherwise, <clears throat> uh, the we the common good c- wouldn't be achieved without without faith or and without charity, which only the church can provide. So so they kind of there's this kind of the two institutions need each other in a way, and they both kind of imply the other one, mm-hmm. but they can't. But, but but then when when they start when the state starts, you know getting involved in church affairs or violating people's consciences it's overstepping its role in a way that's mm-hmm. kind of I, I found that helpful recently as reading through that encyclical recently mm-hmm. um,
2: it's a great it's a great resource on religious freedom which i think is uh uh not not well recognized because it you know the title's god is love
0: Right, right. which is
2: awesome but uh, you know people's people's <laughs> yeah, minds like do that. not run to religious freedom when they hear God is love uh, right. perhaps um, you know religious freedom week this year might might help to change that uh, but um, there's there's some really uh, profound stuff in there about um, the relationship between um, the church and the government uh, you know properly understood it's it's very much what
1: you're saying I agree
0: I mean I wonder sometimes if if a, if when we're thinking about how we communicate religious liberty too often, when we think about what the church teaches, we just go straight to the passages that explicitly say religious right. liberty and maybe, you know, but there are other bigger picture considerations. It's kind of, I think what some yeah. of this conversation is getting at that, Absolutely. that the com- what the common good is about, um, it, it implies something about religious liberty. If you just think about it a mm-hmm. little bit, but we often don't because we just go straight to when we're looking for our yeah.
1: mm-hmm.
0: for our you know putting resources together. We just go straight to the passages that talks explicitly about religious liberty. So, yeah, the yeah, right, right, yeah. right. So I think it's it's helpful I'm helpful to to take this approach. I wonder. I mean, just you mentioned that it there was kind of a jolt when you first um, saw these passages. I remember even in a conversation you mentioning that you noting that these, these lines about religious liberty and the common good are in the parts of the compendium that are about the common good, not religious liberty. Exactly. Um, yeah. I wonder, is there anything else that kind of surprised you or that you found particularly helpful in, in kind of re-examining these issues or just any passages that's, that struck you in a new way?
2: Yeah, I, I think um, again, you know, there's, there was a combination of uh, resonance with this idea that we have that, you know, when you're talking about religious freedom, it's important to emphasize the, the dimension of service to the needy, uh, because again, in the, in the compendium and elsewhere in the, in the um, social teaching of the church, you see the emphasis on uh, the preferential option for the poor, all that. So, I mean, just obviously concern for the poor is so foundational uh, for all those who are vulnerable in any way whatsoever it's 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 always good to kind of see the reinforcement as it relates to religious freedom but again this is something that uh just another kind of point of validation uh the foundational um document here uh associated with this committee right so um our first most church freedom spends a lot of time talking about the relationship between religious freedom on the one hand and the freedom of civil society generally and the ability of the institutions of civil society to flourish, uh, and how those things are connected. And again, um, that's a that's taking it to sort of a one step down foundationally, right? Um, mm-hmm. You're not necessarily talking about particular religious freedom conflicts. You're just talking about the overall environment within which religious freedom and full can come come forward. You you need to have something other than a dynamic of you know individual and state. You need to have the institutions of civil society, and a big part of what religious freedom is about is, in general terms, promoting the space for those. Mm-hmm. Never mind fighting the particular battles where those right, institutions right. of civil society come into conflict with the state, but more broadly setting the conditions where. They can flourish as a whole, and then, 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 in a way, those conflicts—I don't want to say take care of themselves, but are less likely to arise in the first place. Mm-hmm. If there's just a respect for the freedom of those institutions, mostly religious, but not just religious. Again, constituting civil society, then you're 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 serving religious freedom even in a less direct way.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and Anthony, it also strikes me that like that that our our efforts as Catholics, and particularly at the conference, I mean, we're. We're promoting the religious liberty of all. This is yeah. not just about us. This no, is about um, anybody being able to free any any faith being able to freely practice. And something that um, popped up on Facebook the other day was uh, an article which I thought was interesting about talking about um, uh, Saint Thomas More. Mm-hmm. He was talking about um, basically saying that you know where what like so what's the difference between um, they're basically saying that Thomas More didn't, didn't he didn't die for his religious liberty. He died for his Catholic faith. Right. So how do you reconcile those different approaches or arguments?
2: Well, I, I know the article you're talking about. I, I was a little bit puzzled by it in the sense that um, I'm not sure that our, our uh, highlighting here at the conference, uh, the life of Thomas More in connection with Religious Freedom Week before the fortnight for Freedom was, you kind of cast him as a someone who died defending a view of religious freedom but instead just as was uh, suggested that he died you know standing up for his his faith and faced government persecution for that and because of that he becomes a uh, a martyr for religious freedom in the sense that he, Exemplifies what happens, you know, when on the one hand the government overreaches, and on the other hand, people of faith stick to their guns. Mm-hmm. In other words, we we recall the importance of religious freedom when we see someone who's so so strong in the faith be persecuted precisely for that faith. So I, I, it seemed to me that that article and maybe some other things argued along the same lines, sort of set up this false dichotomy that you you're if you're celebrating. Or 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 miscast um, our uh, emphasis on Thomas More, Saint John Fisher, uh, all these others. They're they're not martyrs for religious freedom. They're martyrs for the faith, and therefore, folks who we recall when we reflect upon
1: religious freedom. Uh, they, can, they can inspire us. Yeah. The saints we can pray to them, and they can inspire us to actually to embrace our faith and and imitate them and yeah. and, and and be proud of. Really, the faith. I mean, there's yeah. certainly an inspiring story to me. Yeah. Beheaded for standing up for what he knew to be true about marriage.
2: And we don't. I mean, again, religious freedom week. It's it's been, I think, providential. There are there are lots of um, wonderful celebrations in the ordinary liturgical calendar of the church that fall in that week. That things that are really appropriate for emphasizing um, how important religious freedom is. So, who else? John the Baptist, right? Mm-hmm. Witnessing to the truth about marriage, he yeah. took a hit for that. Yeah, um, Saints, Saints Peter and Paul. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, they were they were witnessing for the church, and they were made to suffer for it as well at the hands of the state. So, uh, the, again, were they out there speaking in the language of dignitas humana Were they talking about human rights? Were they talking about religious freedom in modern terms? No, of course not. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we reflect upon the church's teaching. On religious freedom as we now have it, thanks be to God, as sort of well developed as it is, one of the things that we can reflect upon in spiritual terms uh, and in human terms. Uh, what, is it, what is it that motivates us? What is it that um, helps us to really understand deeply uh, by reading a story um, w- what religious freedom means and why it's important? We reflect on the lives of these saints. I mean, that's that's a natural thing. They resonate well. They're not they're not intention. And so I, I just kind of
0: scratch my head a little bit when I read stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I wonder though, um, to to take another example of a we might call a martyr for religious freedom. Um, I don't I don't know the name. You probably do the um, the woman who was the Quaker woman who was killed in colonial Massachusetts. Um, there's a oh. statue of her in the Boston Commons. Um, just right outside the the Massachusetts State House. Was
1: she accused of being a witch?
0: No, she was accused of being a Quaker. Oh, and so okay. (laughs) I I hope she had evidence to prove it. I think. Yeah, my this wasn't like a witch trial. I mean, she was uh, you know a nonconformist, and um, one of the things that these we we've seen this criticism about Thomas More um, being associated with with the Committee for Religious Liberties work. We've seen this in the past for a while now. And I mean, one of the things they always, the accusation is always, well, he stood up for it, for faith and for the truth. Now, obviously we're Catholics, not Quakers. And so in that sense, um, we, we wouldn't say that she stood up for the truth, but we would say she stood up for her faith or she, she refused to be coerced by the Puritan majority. Yeah. In Massachusetts, and um, and it's it's a question I wonder with with this crowd who who makes these arguments against. Uh, this is a very different set of arguments than we're usually dealing with sure. against our work. Um, is basically like. Do people not? Do people have the right to be wrong, as it's put? Sure. Like in, okay. like in her case, I mean, or I, like it's hard for me to see what they're getting at when they say we shouldn't recognize that people who stood up for their faith, yeah, they're not martyrs for religious liberty in the sense that nobody dies for an abstract concept of right. religious liberty. They all die for their faith. But it's because they lack religious liberty that they got killed for their faith. <laughs> I mean, that's right. why, that's the whole yeah. point of, of recognizing them. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar. It's a story yeah, that, um, is it Seamus Hassan who often...
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my former boss at the Beckett Fund and really a, a hero of religious liberty in the United States. And he
0: um, he would be
2: as embarrassed for me as I am for me right now and not remembering the name yeah. of the person <laughs> you're talking about. Um but yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of examples of that sort, not just of Catholics um, who, who do stick for their guns and they pay for it. And again, there's, there's a human experience there um, that I think we can relate to and that we can understand in the context of our church's teaching about religious freedom. Uh, and we can put those things together and um, again, be deepened in our um, our appreciation for the teaching. And and ultimately as well, our faith more broadly. So, you know, in in an indirect way, I think, um, even people from other faiths who uh, suffer religious persecution uh, are a witness to us as Catholics. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think it can be a very powerful witness, once again, because it it illustrates how, um, I mean, again, this sounds a bit abstract and academic, but it it does validate that this is... um, something that's rooted in the dignity of every human person. Every human person is striving for God. Every human person needs the space to be able to, uh, respond to that, to that God sized hole that they have within themselves. And, Mm -hmm. um, when they are made to suffer for them, even if they're kind of responding to that erroneously or, you know, with hope we say erroneously at first, Mm uh, (laughs) um, they they still need to have that that freedom, and we need to kind of rally around them uh, as well.
0: Well, I wonder. Um, I'm con- I'm conscious of the time, but um, just a, a couple more questions I wanted to ask. One, I just I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the language piece, I and mean, we've kind of I think touched on it a little bit, but like I said, we've been talking in our committee about how we best present. Um, This issue, I think, all every office at the conference has to has to think about this question: How do we, how do we present uh, what the church teaches? How do we present what we're trying to do in the public square? Um, And so, I wonder how this, how this, uh, you know, taking up the issue of the common good might inform our language. Also, though, I'll throw in another question with this one, and you can just pick which one you like better. Because uh, I don't, I don't want to miss this one, is the, the issue of polarization in the church has kind of been a hot topic. Mm-hmm. I think with the, all the stuff about questions about civility in our public life kind of bring it, make it even more important conversation within the church. Um, can we be kind of a uh, 11 in our society right now? Right. Um, and there was this recent conference at Georgetown. Several of our lay consultants were participants in it. So that was great. Uh, and I wonder, I mean, you know, the, the point of the conference was, can Catholic social teaching bring the, the for lack of a better term, left and right uh, together? Now, all Catholics, well, all Americans will say religious liberty is important. Now, they may mean, because lots of people mean different things by religious liberty, but everybody will say it's important. I think, as you mentioned at the beginning, all Catholics are going to say that promoting the common good is important. But generally speaking, the term common good is often associated with the so-called Catholic left, or it's seen as sort of what people on the more social justice side of, of things focus on whereas religious liberty is seen as being a thing of of the conservatives are are more concerned about so i wonder if if this might be a way to this gets at the language issue if the common good if it might be a way to kind of show how the two sides have common concerns kind of can bring people together Uh, I, i it's something i wonder about with this
2: Yeah, I think that there's some opportunity there. Um, I think that, you know, the language question is a tough one. Um, I'm a little concerned about um, the premise that you laid down, which is mostly true, but becoming less true, that everybody does support religious liberty. Uh, I think for the longest time it's been – that's been the case. And as you suggest, the main controversy has been over – well what does that mean? You know, what is the scope of it? Uh, I think unfortunately now even religious liberty itself is starting to get a bit of a bad name. And I think part of what it is that would be helpful for us to continue to, to focus on is rehabilitating the good name of religious freedom. Uh, again, I think the freedom to serve peace has been a good important part of that. I think, uh, you know, opposing this idea that religious freedom is nothing more than a license to discriminate or a ruse, um, uh, to kind of cover up, um, uh, bigoted impulses of one form or another or hostility to women or hostility to this or that minority group or wh- whatever it may be. I think that that sort of thing um, is appropriate to oppose directly, winsomely to be sure, but directly. Um,
1: well, and even the different word, do you, the different mm-hmm. religious liberty versus religious freedom. I mean, the name of the of the bishop's now permanent committee mm-hmm. is on religious liberty, right? Mm-hmm. So is there mm-hmm. a difference between freedom and liberty? And Why the yeah, the I, of
2: that's interesting. I'm not. I'm not sure what's. Um, I don't know that that was all that much thought through. I, mm-hmm. My experience, frankly, is that the term religious freedom is the one that's more commonly used mm-hmm. in in Catholic parlance. Um, but I think both both do show up. But um, is that because
1: of Mel Gibson's Braveheart? Uh, oh line? gosh, freedom. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, kinda,
2: you know. yeah, warned us off it. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I, I guess the you know it, it seems to me that we we are there are that, that distinction I think does um, probably make a difference uh, for some folks I think it kind of strikes the ear a little differently but unfortunately I, I think that we're we're seeing sort of far profounder attacks on religious liberty um, as a concept um, and and the language questions run sort of even more fundamentally there I, I think that the, the the element of sort of bringing as it were the left and the right together on this, maybe within the church is possible uh, because there are some, you know, important shared presuppositions. I think a big part of that in turn is a focus on tone. Um, I really do think that a lot of uh, the breakdown in civility just has to do with um, uh, a breakdown in uh, just ordinary politeness and manners. It's not the sum total of it, and I don't want to reduce it to that. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, particularly, again, like like I said, when you're talking about within church circles and you've got a lot of shared fundamental premises, um, then tone accounts for an awful high percentage of what's going on. Because I think the part that isn't attributable to tone isn't attributable to just, you know, politeness and common courtesy, um, is a result of, um, a, a lack of those shared premises. words, people are so far apart from each other in, in the most basic uh, elements that, you know, that, that, that gives rise to not just sort of puzzlement or curiosity about what this difference means, but anger and hostility and suspicion. And, um, that worsens, um, or that worsens the overall environment, uh, which again is another one of these sort of preconditions about the common good, right? I mean, civility, I think is, I'm not sure I find this in the, um, in the compendium so much, but it does seem to me, of a, another constituent element because um, if you know if people are not in communication uh, and in kind of basically healthy communication then uh, a lot of this stuff just ne- never gets across and the human relations then are really severely impaired you just you, again you're, you're failing to meet even just basic thresholds. Um, you know you got also other things <laughs> this sort of relates to a bigger issue. And it's one of the things that I came across in, in my research, just understanding what, again, what is the common good consistent and how does it relate to religious freedom? Um, social peace. You know, we enjoy social peace in this country, and I think a big part of the reason for that is that we have a robust tradition of religious freedom. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of study going on uh, right now about uh, the conditions for religion in other countries, whether mm-hmm. there's religious freedom there, and um, and and especially how that relates to all kinds of other uh negative you know social phenomena so in other words obviously there's religious persecution there's persecution of christians all that is terrible but there's again there's a lot of study going on that focuses on the question of what what does that say about a society more generally what is how does that correlate to other uh aspects of a given nation and whether it's sort of a um doing other things badly for its people um so i think uh, I mentioned that to say, even if you you look now abroad, or even back in the history of our own country, you realize this connection between religion and religious freedom and social peace. And it's one of the things, and this is kind of a far, far backstop, but (laughs) it's an element of of the common good that we cannot take for granted. Again, talk about these sort of low thresholds, these basic preconditions. Mm -hmm. Social peace is one of them. And Um, we have religious freedom to thank for that, I think, to a large degree. Mm -hmm. Um, And if we neglect religious freedom too much or let it deteriorate, then we need to start worrying about whether that social peace is going to start to erode. Um, Mm -hmm. So, again... you don't necessarily think about this until you, you sit down and sort of dig a little deeply. And then you start really, wow, you know, that, that really is that really is true in our own history. And, and even now abroad, you see how social peace is, is at risk precisely for a lack of religious freedom.
1: Well, and when you don't recognize that, that God has created this person across from you that disagrees right. with you on everything you could possibly think of, you're going to, you, you, you fail to see them as somebody to respect. And instead, it's it's all about, you know... So the growing secularism, I think, in our society has a huge part to play in this, of our inability to just treat people with respect, like you're talking about.
0: Yeah, I do. I get I, I may be the most one of the more pessimistic people in the book. <laughs> no, but one hope, of my, faith, love. One of my concerns <laughs> is that the whole um, you saying that about not taking social peace for granted. Um, I think that a lot of younger people do take social peace for granted, or that's the the sense that I get from kind of the emerging younger professional class. Um, so they, they tend to like these various whether they're whether they're on the left or the right, kind of this attraction to the extremes, um, and this sort of like, I mean, even kind of uh, making fun of the idea of civility is become, I mean, mocking it as, as something that's, that might be important. When, when all you're talking about with civility isn't, you're not talking about um, ignoring differences. You're just, you're just talking about like basic, like with civility, it just sort of means like we can talk, we can even speak to each other and hear one another. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I, 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 worry about it, about the, um, ab- about younger people in general. And you see this a lot too, with polls that show that, that millennials are, would be okay with authoritarian governments, like majority of them. They, <laughs> so, hey, hey. so, um, I don't know. You just, I've seen this, uh, a lot of this. It's not, I, I don't think things are, I think things may or maybe are going to get worse before they get better. But, um, uh, anyway, to, but to close this out, but yeah. speaking to this that's a you're good right. segue to the right. last question to right. close this out is right. what do you see looking ahead? Um, part of the reason I think it's uh, you're a good person to ask is that as, at least as far back as 2005 that I know of, we had that a funny email exchange about this right. um, old article where I, that I saw you <laughs> quoted in. It was funny because I back in in 2005 or 2006, Um, I'll just say I was in a different place in in terms of where, what I thought about different issues.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's another podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so I thought about when, when I saw this article quoting Anthony, I just, I sent to, I was like, man, if, if somebody would have said that in 10 years, you're going to be working for that guy, (laughs) I just would not, I would have. I don't know what I would have thought. He was like, like, you probably would have been thinking, where's the nearest window? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyway, so, I mean, you, but you predicted that marriage redefinition would lead to these conflicts. You saw it other, there, there, you know, a handful of people, I think realized what was going to happen because marriage, but back then the argument was, look, we just want to be like everybody else. Mm -hmm. You know, why are you concerned about what's going on in people's private lives? And you saw that marriage is, is so tangled up with public life. There's no, it's not going to be. It's not just about what people are doing privately in yeah. their homes. And so you saw these conflicts. Um, so I just wonder. I mean, do you see any new issues emerging? We kind of actually alluded to some new yeah. issues emerging, um, or do you think that over the next several years, a lot of it's kind of still working out the we're working out that like things have been set in motion, especially with the decision, the Obergefell decision on same sex, which made same sex marriage legal. Um,
2: Yeah. I I mean, I I do think a lot of those questions are in the process of working themselves out and and that that will kind of remain the headline. But I do think uh, at the same time, there are other things um, that are also going on concurrently. I mean, there's one that's sort of closely related, which is, um, Transgenderism um, that you know occupies some of the same space in terms of um, the the overall subject matter of human sexuality, of anti discrimination law that's oriented toward those those features of human sexuality, um, church teaching um, that that um, is potentially at odds with what some of those legal requirements are, and as a result, um, you have religious freedom conflicts. So that, that's one area. Um, you don't have that kind of built in civil legal infrastructure protecting marriage that's as pervasive. Um, when you're talking about, um, transgenderism, for example, but there's still a wide range of areas where it could crop up. Uh, so that's, that's kind of a second or third order thing, I think, in relation to the marriage redefinition thing, which is really the the single biggest still. Um, Uh, The other thing I will say, and this is, again, relates back to the, to the piece about, um, uh, the freedom to serve and maybe perhaps limits on, on that otherwise, you know, valuable idea. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about lately, uh, as we see, especially a lot of hostility to the church's charitable work in relation to migrants and refugees, is that, you know, the freedom to serve derives its appeal from the appeal of the service we are doing in the, in the public mind, right, um, in other words, <laughs> yeah, freedom to serve is great if if folks agree with what it is that we're doing as a service. Um, but if if our service in resettling refugees in the United States is unpopular, then at a minimum, our arguments along those lines are going to be less effective. Um, but more broadly, it just points to the weakness, which is that you know our our um, our, our our basic argument can't just rest on. Um, it can't be quite so consequentialist, you know, just like, well, if if it leads to this social good where everybody else is assessing what the social good is, (laughs) then Mm -hmm. we're in a vulnerable position. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's another way of saying that that was just one example of what could be a broader phenomenon, right? Like right now, refugee resettlement work that we do is kind of on the outs. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, it could be that, um, uh, that as time passes the work that we do in, um, in hospitals and prolonging life, uh, you know, uh, aid to uh, the elderly in all kinds of forms, other people who are sort of uh, weak, inconvenient, unwanted, whatever. If that becomes less and less popular, uh, if we talk about the freedom to serve in that regard, folks may just shrug. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't value that. That's not really much mm-hmm. of a service. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we don't particularly value your freedom to be able to do it. So go ahead and pound sand. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, like I said, it, it just seeing, seeing how one of our particular apostolates has has fallen out of favor in that way just raises the broader question. It just makes me think, you know, for the future, what if other things fall out of favor similarly? Um, and and if we, if we put all our eggs in the one public argument basket
0: of the freedom to serve, um, are we going to be in a tough spot then? Well, I think we could go on and on, but I know that today is a, 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 an even busier day than usual, actually. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of the day to come and talk to us. Um, so thanks for thanks for joining us. And I hope we can do this again sometime soon. It's My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Uh, this is Aaron Matthew Weldon.
1: And Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. <laughs>